Welcome to the Hat Soil Health Podcast, a production of Hoosier Ag Today and made possible by the Indiana Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, a program of the Indiana Conservation Partnership. Once a month, we'll spotlight the many efforts around Indiana by CCSI and its many partners to improve soil health on Indiana cropland. Here's the host of the Hat Soil Health Podcast, Eric Pfeiffer. Welcome in to the Hat Soil Health Podcast. I'm Eric Pfeiffer, and today we're discussing spring management of cover crops. It's really important on vegetable farms. Fall planted crops that did not winter kill will likely need to be terminated. Residue from those as well as from crops that did, uh, that did winter kill must be managed in some way so that good establishment can be achieved for the vegetable crop whether it's direct seeded or transplanted. And we're going to discuss that today on the Hat Soil Health Podcast. And I have a couple of experts with me to discuss this today. And first, I want to welcome in uh, someone who's been on the podcast before, and we appreciate you returning, Dan Perkins from Perkins Good Earth Farm. And uh, Dan, if you could just reintroduce yourself for our listeners. Sure, sure. Glad to do that. Um, it's good to be back. I am Dan Perkins, and I own and operate North in Northwest Indiana, Perkins Good Earth Farm. We're a 200 member CSA four season farm. We have an on-farm stand and also a small commercial kitchen that prepares grab and goes soups and salads. And um, we've been in operation now for almost eight years and uh, previously worked as a crop advisor for the Soil and Water District in Jasper County. Um, so I'm very familiar with conventional ag and organic ag. Um, so we are a certified organic vegetable operation and we make a full-time living from it. And I love what I do. And that's what matters. Dan, thank you so much for joining us here on the Hat Soil Health Podcast. I also want to welcome in Stephen Myers. He's the assistant professor and weed management extension specialist in the Department of Horticulture and Landscape Architecture at Purdue University. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Please introduce yourself. Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's good to be with you. Uh, like you said, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Horticulture and Landscape Architecture with Purdue University. And uh, I, I conduct research and outreach for the state's vegetable, fruit, and ornamental growers in the area of weed science. So uh, trying to improve the integrated weed management for our stakeholders in the state of Indiana. Very good. Thank you so much for joining us. And let's jump right in here and let's talk about, Dan, I'll throw this first one to you. What are some of the main ways that an overwintered crop can be terminated? Well, some of the main ways, um, of course, would be herbicide, um, rolling it, mowing, tillage. And then specific to my context, you know, a small diverse operation is the use of tarps. So silage tarps um, or clear tarps, so kind of like greenhouse plastic, um, and using utilizing those combined with flail mowing, um, whatever cover crop is there, and then tarping it before um, planting. So that is a very effective way on a small scale in a reduced tillage environment. Um, we we pretty much don't till here unless it's an emergency. And with cover crops, there can be emergencies. Um, anyone who has any sort of experience with them um, knows that that can happen. It's just part of life. 
but um, on a small scale, that's the way we typically um, use, you know, to, for termination. So, Steve, I'll, I'll let you handle the herbicide side of things. Yeah, thanks, Dan. So, I, I, Dan did a great job of summarizing the different methods for cover crop termination, and and one of those is is chemical chemical um, termination, and a lot of times that that'll be with um, something like glyphosate, which we're all pretty familiar with. Um, that's going to be predominantly the one that folks will use the most. The um, the only issue that we tend to have with it is there are a lot of glyphosate resistant weeds out there. And so something to be mindful of if you have those glyphosate resistant weeds like mare's tail or horseweed, um, some might call it, is that you know, we may have to have a backup plan if, if glyphosate um, to terminate our cover crop is not sufficient to also control those winter annual weeds. Um, so that's something to be mindful of. I, I guess I'll just add also that the termination method that one will use is really dictated by uh, kind of their production method and also the crop that they plan to grow. So whereas rolling and crimping might be a good method for a crop that may be transplanted or a large seeded crop, that may not be really conducive to small seeded crops like carrots or beets that may have trouble growing through the, the cover crop residue that's left behind with that kind of termination method. So um, those small seeded crops will usually require either some kind of strip tillage method or, or, or tillage um, to have exposed all where they can germinate. Yeah, and I, and I would add to that, Steve, if, if you have small seeded direct seed crops like spinach or salad greens, you know, if you're using the tarp technique, you, you basically need time. So if you flail mow, say it's a cereal rye in the spring, you flail mow that down. And the reason I say flail mow is because it chops it small enough. Um, so it will break down fast enough. And then you put that tarp on for three weeks you know, in end of March, early April. So you got to have three week window there where you can let it rest, die, have the soil digest it, the microbes work on it so that when you pull back that tarp, you know, for us, maybe a light raking might be required, but ideally nothing. Um, and that's how we get away with no tillage is we have to give it time. And similarly, the herbicide, you need to give it time to work. Now, you mentioned some factors. Uh, Stephen, I'm, I want to throw this one to you. What other factors would go into the decision about which method to use? Yeah, so that's, that's a good question. Um, I guess one, I mentioned that the, the production system that, that a producer has will dictate this to some extent. So if you are, for example, an organic, certified organic, or if you just grow organically, um, the herbicide, the synthetic herbicide is not going to be an option for you. And so if that's the path that you take, you may have to opt instead for either tillage or mowing or rolling and crimping, for example. So that, that may dictate um, you know, what termination method you can use based on your production system. Yeah, and also what equipment you have available. Um, you know, if you're gonna use some sort of reduced till into some residue of a cover crop, you better have a way to cut you know, with your transplanter, cut a clean slice into and then get those transplants in the ground. Um, you know, or if you're using plastic, I'm pretty sure laying plastic into a lot of residue is not a good idea. Uh, Steve, you could probably talk more about that. Um, that's where tillage is going to, you know, just to get a good bed prep in my experience. Um, that's that's going to be a challenge if you have a lot of residue there. 
That's a really good point, Dan. Yeah. So if, if, if a producer is in a plastic culture production system, so where they lay um, black plastic mulch or white plastic mulch and, and plant into that, certainly if there's a lot of residue left behind, that would, would be problematic. Um, primarily because, well, for a couple of reasons, but primarily because some of that residue or stubble could poke holes in the plastic, which would... Know, of course, affect its ability to retain heat, but it would also allow entry points for weeds to emerge, and and that would be something that the grower would then have to to manage. Um, but also because you wouldn't get um, really the nice kind of bed that you like to see underneath plastic mulch, which is just kind of a nice, high and firm um, bed where you have good contact with the mulch in the soil, so you don't have this gap of um, hot air that essentially travels uh, underneath the uh, interface there and can damage the transplants. So that's a really good point, Dan, that if, if you have a plastic culture production system, that's another area where you are gonna wanna try to get rid of as much of that residue, or at least a coarse residue as you can. Yeah, and, and of course, one way to do that is to plan ahead, which cover cropping with vegetables always requires, or just cover crop use in general, right? So if you're able to plant oats and peas in the fall, ahead of laying your plastic in the spring, by the time you go to prep your beds, you know, early April, early May, if it's later planted stuff, that residue from the oats and peas and radish say, are gonna be pretty minimal. I mean, like, like soybean residue or less. So that's just a judgment call each spring of then how much tillage or what you're gonna do to prepare the ground um, for plastic. Um, in my case, you know, we, we don't do tillage necessarily, but I basically have to choose a piece that winter killed nicely. There wasn't a lot of residue. Um, and so the only reason for me to tarp, tarp it would be if I get some weeds coming up. So, Dan, weather changes so rapidly as days progress in the spring and plants grow very quickly. There must be timing considerations to this management. I want to ask about specific cover crops here in a moment, but before that, is there any general rule of thumb about timing? I mean, as a general rule, if you're aiming to plant, you know, May 15th for zucchini, tomatoes, peppers, those kinds of things, after the frost, you know, frost date, last frost date, you're going to want to have that term cover crop dead, thoroughly dead and terminated two weeks before. So it's not like two weeks before you're going to plant, you kill that cover crop necessarily. Um, the exception would be if it's like a straight legume, like um, crimson clover. That I would be a little more comfortable 10 days before I could go in and flail mow it, tarp it, or flail mow it and then lightly rototill it, um, you know, a half inch to terminate it, or an herbicide. It's kind of all the same. Um, in, in terms of the timing, in my opinion, um, to where that cover crop is then able to break down um, before your final planting step. I don't know, Steve, if you'd agree with that. Yeah, so if I'm, if I'm looking at this from my weed science lens, there's, there's a lot to consider. So for individuals who may be able to uh, no-till plant large seeded crops, let's say sweet corn, there, there is some, some data that show if you don't want to use herbicides, you may benefit from direct seeding that um, with a no-till planter into a standing living cover and then terminating it after planting so that you can take advantage of having more biomass. Mm -hmm. 
available for weed spreading. Um, if you are going to use chemical weed control, then you may not see a benefit from that extra biomass that you generate by letting the crops, the cover crop stand a little longer. I will yeah, echo what Dan said in that for, if you're gonna use, again, a chemical termination method and the most common would be glyphosate, in the spring when our, our temperatures are really cool, it could take seven or 10 days after you spray glyphosate before you start to see it taking effect on the cover crop. And so if you go, go ahead and you know, treat the area you plan to plant three weeks before you plant it, that gives you time to, to make sure that, that the treatment was effective, that you didn't miss any spots in your application, um, and that, that the cover is, is terminated by the time you go to, to prepare that, that site for planting. Um, right. And, and I would echo that, Steve, that it's also a, a challenge that if you have a legume out there, you spent the money to put it in. If you're really going to get the benefit from it, like for sweet corn, and I think we talked about this before, where maybe your later planted sweet corn that's the spot where you let your crimson clover or whatever legume you have go to full flower so that because you're not putting that sweet corn in until early June. Whereas your earliest planted sweet corn, maybe you had oats and peas out there um, as a way to like further get soil health really building as opposed to, you know, a, a, a two inch tall crimson clover with no flower isn't, isn't doing all that much for you from a nitrogen perspective. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. So it's the later planted crops, and then the one I tend to think about, and I think that's been talked about on this program quite a bit, would be pumpkin, right? So you have those legumes, and they can actually go through that process of flowering and, and nodulating, producing, um, you know, or, or sequestering nitrogen that then can go into the soil, providing pollinator, uh, you know, food uh, for our beneficial insects and that kind of thing, provide those other kind of ecosystem services. Um, from a later planted crop. They're allowed to stand a little bit longer and reach their full potential. I guess the other thing that, that comes to mind when we talk about timing of termination relative to planting the crop is the potential for a, a green bridge, some might call it for insect pests, right? So the, the, rec the recommendation there tends to be to terminate two to three weeks or so the cover crop before planting so that we don't have uh, cutworms or, or some other kind of lepidopteran pest move into our crop. The other one that comes to mind is uh, seed corn maggot. Right? If we're going to cultivate some organic matter, we want to try to do that uh, ahead of time as well so that hopefully we don't have seed corn maggot issues. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about winter rye, Stephen. It's a, it's a common cover crop on vegetable farms. What are some examples of how it's managed? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's one of the most widely grown cover crops in, in Indiana. And, and part of that is because it is pretty forgiving in its establishment. Um, you know, you can, you can sow it pretty late and still get a decent stand. It can, it can really accumulate a lot of biomass. If, if cereal rye is allowed to reach its full potential, it's, you know, I'm six foot tall-ish and it can grow over the top of my head. So you just have to be mindful of, uh, you know, what your capability is when it comes to terminating it. So if, if you're going to roller crimp it, ideally you would let it get to a no stage so that the seed, is, the seed head is actually exposed 
um, the, the seeds themselves are, are in that, that doughy stage. And then, you know, for rolling crimping or mowing, you're going to see the, the greatest success from your termination when it's at that stage of development. Um, if you want going to spray herbicides, you know, you could spray those before it, um, you know, goes to that boot stage and you'll get some success there as well because it can, it can take it up and move it throughout the plant um, more efficiently. Um, but if, if you're in someone like Dan scenario where you're trying to uh, maybe break down some of that biomass, you may not want to let it get six foot tall before you do something with it. Um, that's, and he can tell you a little bit more about that. Yeah, I would echo Steve's um, analogy there with cereal rye getting six foot tall real fast, um, especially this time of year, early May, when we start getting some growing degree days. Um, I have some cereal rye in some of my fields right now that are, you know, it's it's at my waist and in two weeks it's going to be above my head. Um, and in scenarios like that, I'm either roller crimping it or I'm saying that's my my ground I'm going to let go to cover crop and I'm going to put a cover crop in there for the summer and then put my fall crops in. Um, so I've, over the years, I've tended to say, all right, if my cover crop is getting big, that's where I'm going to put my fall crops on, which gives me time to manage not only the residue on top because all that biomass, but also the root mass of cereal rye, it's like Velcro. And so if I'm trying to run my cedar or anything through there, um, without not wanting to use heavy tillage, I have to give the soil time to break down that root mass. So not only on top, but below too. Um, so that's something I've run into. So if I have a piece of ground I need to get to in the spring to plant, you know, middle April, I'm in there March when that cereal rise two inches tall at the most and has barely started to tiller. I'm terminating it at that point. Um, I've learned that that's what I need to do if I'm going to get in there early. Um, now with bigger planters um, and transplanters, you could probably wait a little bit, but you're still going to face some of those challenges. And I think it's really important that we, we keep emphasizing the cereal part of this cereal rye. Um, for those who may just be getting started with cover crops, they may hear rye and think of rye grass, which is not the same. Um, rye grass may get, you know, 12, 18 inches tall, and it, it can be really difficult to terminate rye grass. Uh, even with tillage, it tends to form these clumps and, and may not die. Um, and, and it also has a propensity to become herbicide resistant. So sometimes it's difficult to kill even with herbicides. So I think it's really important to note that when we're talking about rye as a cover crop, you know, we're really talking about cereal rye. Yeah, and I, I use annual ryegrass on our farm because, um, you know, we're not using herbicide and we're using tarps to kill it, which I can effectively kill because it, it doesn't get a high carbon to nitrogen ratio, um, which means it, it melts like butter underneath that tarp or properly killed with herbicide. It also melts down really quickly um, as opposed to cereal rye, which is really can get really coarse once it's above the vegetative stage. So yeah, definitely things to think about in terms of you know, your timing of herbicide or whatever your method you're using to kill that cover crop um, and what you want to do next with it. Uh, that, that becomes important. Dan, hairy vetch is used as a winter annual that can fix significant amounts of nitrogen that becomes available to the crop. What termination methods work for it? I 
as a small scale vegetable farmer, generally stay away from it. Um, but I've worked with many pumpkin growers um, that have used it because it can fix a lot of nitrogen. Um, and it is relatively easy to kill with herbicide and and rolling uh, roller crimping. You just have to be willing to wait um, in both cases. So if you're going to roller crimp it, you have to kill it when it has one or two pods formed. So, you know, in an organic setting, if you're using hairy vetch, be mindful if you have wheat next in your rotation or if you don't have good cultivation methods, it it does have a fair amount of hard seed. So I always use hairy vetch seed that's two or three years old. Um, the percent hard seed goes way down. Um, and, you know, I, I tend to use other clovers like crimson clover, which does not have as much hard seed and is is not quite, you know, it doesn't get six foot long in terms of a vine, um, which depending on what you're trying to do can be a really good thing. So again, it comes back to what's your goal and how are you going to manage that? Yeah, and I'll, I'll just echo that. I, I know um, when Dan and I were visiting about this before, you know, I, in my experience, when I've tried to roller crimp vetch, it usually pops back up. And I think that is because I didn't wait for it to, to get those one or two pods on it. It was just mm -hmm. powering stage. And, and that may be, um, you know, really critical to terminating it with the roller crimper method. I know, Dan, you said you, you may also grow some early varieties so that, you know, that termination can happen sooner in the, the growing season. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. I, we've done a number of different trials over the years with different varieties and Purple Bounty, Winter Bounty are some of the ones that come to my mind that they can flower two weeks earlier um, than other kinds, especially VNS or variety not stated. And that, from a management perspective, that's like planting your, you know, your sweet corn May 10th as opposed to May 30th. Like that's, that's a big difference um, in terms of when you're going to be able to harvest that sweet corn and get in there and all that. Now, Stephen, radishes winter kill and so often do oats. How are people managing those residues in the spring? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I know radishes, especially the, the really long daikon or tiller radishes, had, uh, are, are pretty popular. And for the most part, in my experience with, with radishes, as long as we get uh, you know, three or four consecutive lows in the low 20s, they tend to just die and wither away and leave a hole in the ground. Um, so in my experience in Indiana, I, I don't usually, uh, wouldn't anticipate them overwintering. Um, and, and so there may really be no termination method in the spring that's required in that case. Sometimes oats will overwinter and, and they can be terminated either with a, um, you know, a, a glyphosate treatment or with one of the grass herbicides. So something like a clethodim or a cethoxidim a product would do a good job of managing oats uh, should they overwinter. Yeah, and I would second that. The residue from oats and peas, you know, unless you planted it August 1st, um, generally by the time we want to be putting vegetable seed in the ground, you know, early May, um, is generally not a problem. Now, Dan, we've been talking about terminating cover crops in the spring because spring is when so many new crops are planted, but how does management differ, or does it, on a farm where there are multiple planting dates, multiple crops throughout the year? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, so we're succession planting 
you know, lettuce, salad greens, spinach um, every week, um, pretty much starting April 1st on um, until I think it's time to stop in the fall um, and take my chances. And so we, you know, we operate on a 30 inch bed system. So our perm, it's a, basically a permanent bed system. Um, it's a flat, you know, not raised bed. Um, and so we're able to, you know, plan out a little bit as much as one can. And, you know, if we're going to have direct seeded crop, we might power harrow it, which again is, you know, less than a half inch to take some of that residue um, or even just rake it out of the way um, in order to put in salad greens. Um, I generally always have oats and peas and buckwheat on hand. So if we have a section of four or five beds that, you know, are done for the spring. So, you know, I have some beds that are just finishing up spinach production right now. Um, I might turn around and, you know, middle of May, put in oats for 30 days, lay on mow that down, tarp it for two weeks and have, you know, my last planting of green beans in that spot. So I'm practicing crop rotation, get, I'm getting double use out of my land, um, which is important for how, you know, labor intensive our crops are. And so, you know, I just have those three species always on hand and I can seed them, you know, broadcast and often the way I irrigate, I can just irrigate them right in. And so I have different termination methods different times of the year because you can also begin to use a clear um, clear tarps as well um, through the effect of solarization. You know, you put down a tarp and you have three or four sunny days on it and any sort of broadleaf cover crop, so that'd be buckwheat, um, it will toast that real fast. Um, so we do that also with like arugula and some of our other cash crops. We're able to terminate those as if we put an herbicide on it um, and then, you know, put put compost right on top of that arugula and plant be planting the next day. Um, so that's really fast turnover um, for whatever residue we're dealing with. So in terms of managing succession where you have lots of crops, three or four crops in the same bed space, it it takes a little craftsmanship and improvising. Um, but I've, I've kind of narrowed it down to if there's an opening and I look at my planting calendar and I have 30 days, I'm putting buckwheat out there if it's, you know, summertime. Likewise, if there's an opening of, you know, 45, 50 days, I, I'll throw oats out there. Um, it's, I may not get a lot of growth, but I'm in our light sands, wind erosion is a big concern. Um, and so maybe I'm not getting, you know, three feet of root, but I am getting wind erosion protection and that's worth a lot. Now, Stephen, what are the main problems that can happen if cover crops aren't terminated properly? Yeah, another great question there. Um, so I guess that the main problem, if, if you don't get your cover crops terminated effectively, is, is that your timing is thrown off, right? Dan just emphasized the importance of having everything on a schedule and especially if you have crops that are grown in succession, you know, needing to get them in, out, get them to market at a certain time, right? So if if our our initial termination tactic 
not effective at, at killing the cover crop, then, then that kind of throws everything in the system off. So it's always good, I think, in the case of termination to have a plan B. So if you think you're going to roller crimp or you plan to roller crimp and that doesn't work for some reason, the cover crop pops back up, be prepared for something else, you know, whether that's chemical or tillage, uh, be prepared to, to, you know, have a backup plan if plan A is not successful. Well, let's talk about those backup plans because sometimes weather doesn't cooperate, other things happen. What types of backup plans should there be? I mean, have a rototiller or a disc or a neighbor that has some heavy equipment, um, worst case scenario. Um, or what I try to do is I have more ground ready than I need. So, for example, you know, a quarter of my acreage might be in overwintered oats and peas, you know, where stuff comes out midsummer. So generally that stuff's easy to handle. Um, you know, three quarters of my ground might be ready in terms of having tarps on it so that I just can roll those back. And then, you know, a quarter of it would then be have an overwintered cover crop that if I choose to terminate early, I can. And then if it becomes, you know, early May, like it is now, I just know I'm not going to try because it takes a whole lot of effort. And unless all of a sudden I need to plant tons more, um, which is generally not a good surprise necessarily. Um, I just have to choose not to plant that area. Our time is running short here on the Hat Soil Health podcast. And I want to throw this out to both of you as our last question. Uh, Stephen, we'll start with you. What are a couple of the most important things you would suggest to someone who's just starting out to be aware of in terms of managing spring cover crops? So I think there's there's an adage that if you um, fail to plan, you plan to fail. I've got a baby crying in the background. I don't know if that shows. <laughs> that's fine. That's 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 what uh, podcasts are all about. There you go. There you go. So I, I, being planning ahead, I think if if you if you think you want to roll a crimp especially in this day and age where markets and, and productions and those kinds of things can be really disrupted, making sure you have the right implement on farm when you need it and that you know how to use it. So if you're roller crimping for the first time, talk to other farmers that have experience with that practice, especially if they've got the same implement as you. So, you know, how much water do you put in the, the roller crimper to get the right weight? What kind of soil uh, moisture is ideal for what stage of development has worked for farmers in your area. I think it's good to get out there, talk to others who have tried it and, and done it successfully and, and have hopefully failed a few times and you can learn from others' failures and other successes. And, and I think that'd be a great starting point. And by the way, Stephen, if I had a nickel for every time I had a kid screaming in the background of my broadcast, I'd be a pretty rich man. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Dan, what about you? Um, yeah, I would just emphasize again, have a plan and have a plan B, C, D, E. <laughs> and, you know, also think about what your goal is. You know, if it's wind erosion, soil erosion, great. Then utilize the cover crop for that purpose. If it's trying to get nutrients and biomass weed control out of it, then you're going to have to manage that differently. Um, you know, the research is saying if you can let that cover crop go two weeks longer in the spring, you're getting 100% more biomass, you're getting more nitrogen. Um, 
but you're going to have to change your plans or the way you used to do things or have done things uh, to order get to get those benefits. Um, you can't just throw it out there and hope it works. Dan, if folks want to learn more about your operation, where can they go? Um, they can find us on social media, PerkinsGoodEarthFarm.com. We're on Instagram. Um, yeah, we uh, we are out there and come visit us. We're right off I-65. If you're heading up to Chicago, we'd love to have you come by and visit. Very good. Dan, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on the Hat Soil Health Podcast. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Enjoyed it. And that's a wrap on this Hat Soil Health Podcast presented by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. Learn more about CCSI and see a calendar of events at ccsin.org. I'm Eric Pfeiffer. This has been a production of Hoosier Ag Today, Indiana's Farm Network.